Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show us wonderful things in your word. And above all things, that we would leave this place more impressed with Jesus, more confident in what he's done, more full of hope with what he has promised to do. And so, Holy Spirit, come and lift Christ high, that all of our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter to the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, He was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me and the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Feel free to grab a seat. A book series that I am always rereading, um, might be one of your favorites as well, is a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Perhaps the best way of understanding this series of books is as a mythic retelling of the, the Bible story of creation and fall and redemption and new creation. In this story, it takes place in a fictional land called Narnia. 
this place of Narnia is described this way in the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the World, by a character named Mr. Tumnus. He was like half fawn on the bottom, kind of human up top, and got furry again. So he's, a, he's an amalgam of things, and he's describing Narnia this way. It is winter in Narnia and has been forever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. The description of this cold and frozen, shadow-laden place without joy. The reason is the, the ruler of Narnia at this time, a false ruler, but a ruler nonetheless, is a woman known as the White Witch, and she cursed the land. She said, it will always be winter, and it will never be Christmas. This is one of the ways Lewis describes, C.S. Lewis describes um, the impact of, of sin and rebellion in our world, that, that, it, that it casts a shadow, that it steals joy, that it fractures that which was beautiful. Always winter, but never Christmas. The reason I set up this text this way is we actually see that here in verse 5 and, 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 and as it continues on, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, that's not just locating us to a time, but locating us to a context that was really difficult. God's people at this time were under the false rulership of, of Herod. He was a, a king placed into power by Roman, the, 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 the Roman Empire, which was occupying the, the land of Israel at the time. And he was ruthless. He was violent. The Bible gives an account that happened as he was trying to consolidate his power because he, he believed that there was a, a king to come. There was a Messiah to come. There was God's deliverer to come, and he didn't want to give up power. And, and so what he did is at one point he, created, he, he announced an edict that every male two years or younger in Bethlehem would be murdered. That act is atrocious, and yet if you go look at the other things he did, it feels like just even a small footnote. Judea wasn't free. Herod was in power. It was an occupied land under a false leader as an oppressed people. That's how this narrative begins. And then it goes on. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. The preface on this text is, is national struggles and personal ache. This faithful, serving, blameless, righteous couple, according to verse 6, couldn't have a child, and, and, it, and it hurt. And they're well advanced in years. I mean, this is decades of hurt. And this is a hurt that some of you know far too well, whether personally and some of you by proximity. A very real ache, as one couple remarked on this inability to have a child, it presents that strange grief which has no focus for its tears and no object for its love. Culturally, what this would have added to the sadness for Elizabeth and for Zechariah would have been shame. The prevailing attitude would have been that Elizabeth had done something wrong that this was a punishment from God for her lack of uprightness or faithfulness. So in addition to the sorrow she must have felt, there was also the shame. I praise God for verse six in this text. 
that makes it unmistakable that they were righteous before God. Not perfect, but they walked in a way that honored him. See, sometimes the shadows in this world are because there's just broken things in this world. Sometimes we break them, and sometimes they're just broken. This is a situation where they didn't break anything. It was just broken. Now, the shame, we see it reinforced. This isn't just something I'm saying. We see it reinforced down in 25 when Elizabeth does get pregnant, and then she says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. He removed the shame. There's national pain. There's personal pain. The story begins with winter and no Christmas. It doesn't take long and doesn't take much imagination for probably all of us to engage with this. To say there are real hurts and real aches. There's real beauty and real joy and real gladness and real sorrow. There's, there's in, in a room like this, there, there, the reality is there's such a range. Physically, Illnesses, psychologically, struggles, relationally, fracture, financially, difficulty, spiritually, dryness. And we could say spiritually flourishing, physically thriving, financially good, relationally whole. I mean, we just, it, the, the world is just full of a real amalgam. Can sometimes for some of us, though, feel a lot like winter with not a whole lot of Christmas. And we start here in the shadows for a reason. We're gonna, by God's grace, this series, this focus, this run up to Christmas, I'm hoping it is full of so much joy, tremendous joy on Sundays and throughout the week in your lives. But it would be foolish for us to enter into a season that is often very good and very hard simultaneously without starting where this text does, which is the shadows. And when we start there, what it does is it actually gives us an ability to better grasp how good the birth of Jesus really is when the light comes into the darkness. Now, I don't know anybody who um, likes that it's dark at 4.30. We will pray for the one person that raised his hand. I won't even look in that direction. Like, I, I don't, but, but one of the things that it does afford us as we, we wander around our city and our county is it makes the Christmas lights that much more dazzling. Christmas lights don't look that great during the daytime. They really don't. All over our house is strung everywhere. You're like, oh, I can't wait till it's dark and the lights come on. And when we start here in the shadows, what it will do is highlight the work of Christ in a way that just sparkles. I love how Tish Harrison Warren said it in an article she wrote. She says, want to get into the Christmas spirit? Face the darkness. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache. Our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. Elizabeth would have felt that. Zechariah would have felt that. The people of God would have felt that. They're in the shadows, waiting for things to change. Um, I find, as I look through these verses, there's so many startling and stunning verses in this text. Verse six is, is stunning to me. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Or verse eight, now while he was serving as priest before God, and what's stunning is not just that they were an upright couple, but they didn't, they didn't give up on God when it would have been so easy to believe that God had given up on them. To not give them the thing that they longed for that created an ache and a hurt in their lives. It's so easy to doubt God's goodness when things aren't good. 
Or consider verse 10 here. There's a multitude of people gathered. And I'll explain more of this, what's happening in, in, in this text here in a minute. But just for now, in verse 10, this people gathered and, and they, were, they were praying before, before God. It would have been so easy as a people where Herod was ruling and reigning, where the, the, the Roman Empire had, had occupied to, to say, God either doesn't care or God doesn't exist. And yet they don't. I find, that's really, I find that really, really stunning. You know, why didn't they give up? I'd suggest to you, it's, it's this one word, they, they still had hope. They had hope that things could change. They had hope that things wouldn't continue. They had hope that, that maybe winter would give way to Christmas. And where do I get that idea? In the act that they did, they prayed. In the midst of corporate pain and personal pain, big aches and very personal aches. They prayed. Prayer, among many things, is an act of hope, a way of saying that God hasn't forgotten, that God never forgets. And one of the things I love about this text is the names. We're not, we're not going to talk about the name of John this week. We'll wait a couple weeks and, and, and walk through that. But the name Zechariah, the name Zechariah actually means the Lord remembers. In the midst of the shadow, there's still this signpost that the Lord still remembers. And when you understand the, the history that went before this text, that becomes even more dazzling. Um, where we begin here in Luke 1, it comes after what's often known as the 400 years of silence. This time where there was no prophets of God, there was no, the, no words from the Lord, there was, was just silence. In, in your Bibles, the, the English uh, arrangement of the Bible ends with, with Malachi. We'll look at a promise there in a second. Um, it, it, it ends with Second Chronicles in the Hebrew arrangement of the Bible. But, but nevertheless, there's this last word that's given. There's this promise given. And then 400 years waiting for it to be fulfilled. Of poor leadership, of, of false leaders, of sin, of hurt, of national and global calamities and personal struggles. God's people had God's promises, but they weren't yet fulfilled. Promises for redemption, for a savior, for, for a true and better king to come. But what they had was 400 years of winter. Here's the last promise from God from the end of uh, the, the book of Malachi. Malachi 4, 5 and following, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's this promise that there's one that's going to come, like Elijah, who was a great prophet of God, and he was going to come like Elijah, and what he was going to do is to turn hearts back to God and reconcile people with one another. And you likely hear those parallels here in Luke chapter 1 as applied to this promised baby, John. There'd be one that would come and he would point to the Christ. He would point to the true and better king. He would point to the savior. He would point to the one that will do away with winter. He would point to the one that can break the curse. Just like Zachariah's name reminds us of something of God that the Lord remembers, so does Elizabeth's name. Elizabeth means um, the Lord is my oath or God keeps his promises. And what we hear in Luke 1, this announcement in the, in the time of Herod and in a place of barrenness is that God is indeed fulfilling what he has promised to do. Now, the context of this scene is important. What's going on in this scene, this hour of incense was a very specific thing in, in the history of God's people. This happened either at what was known as a morning sacrifice or an evening sacrifice. 
So at the temple in Jerusalem, which was the center place of, uh, at that time of God's people's worship, they would gather at this temple. The people that were there would gather together at the morning sacrifice or the evening sacrifice, and they would gather, and then the priests that were appointed to minister on behalf of the people before God, they would come, and there's a couple things that would happen here. I won't explain all of them, but, but some of the things that would happen is they would come and offer a sacrifice. They would take an animal, and they would bring it to the altar, and it would be killed symbolically in the place of, of all of God's people, and it was offered on an altar, and it was a way of showing the very seriousness of our sin and our rebellion before God, that there had to be a sacrifice made, that the wages of sin are death, and so this animal would come, and the priest would come uh, with all of this ornate and, 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 and clean and white linen robes to try to represent a, a holiness that we don't have, and he would take the animal, and it would come to the altar, and it would be offered on behalf of the people, and then it would be put on this altar of flame, and it would go up before the the Lord. But there was something else that accompanied it. It was this, this prayer that was given. It was the burning of, of incense. And this text gives some of the details. There was tons of priests at this time. And they would actually come to all the main festivals. But then when it wasn't main festival time, for, they would have two-week service. They would come for two weeks, and they would come serve. And so during that time, there would be a morning and evening sacrifice. But there was more priests than there was opportunities to burn the incense. And so they cast lots. They did this thing to try to figure out, like, who's the one that's going to go in? And it fell on Zechariah. This is, like, the highest privilege that he will ever receive as a priest for God. It could only happen once in your lifetime. If you ever did it once, you never got to do it again. Most priests didn't get to do it because of the sheer number of them. And so after the sacrifice, what would happen then is the priest would go from the outer court area and it would go into this area called the holy place. And in this holy place, all the other priests would leave. And Zechariah would come forward doing this thing that he'd never got to do before and never get to do again, and he would offer incense. And the, the incense were symbolic of prayer. And so the idea was in this place, Zechariah would go in and offer up incense that would then fill up this holy place and it would spill out so all the people in the court around it could see it. And these, as the smoke lifted, it was like our prayers going up to God. So the question is, what did Zechariah pray? He's in this place praying. What did he pray? We don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us. There might be some clues in the text and some clues we can get from, from Bible history. At first glance, if we look at verse 13, it feels like what he probably prayed for was a son. He was, you know, he's in there. He's, it's obviously something that they longed for. The text points to it multiple times. It doesn't take a lot of, a big leap to imagine that he prayed for a son. And that's possible for sure. But it's interesting because you get down to verses 18 in the commentary on 20 that he's like, how's this going to happen? It seems like his disbelief kind of counteracts the fact that he might be praying for a son, like praying for something that he's like, this isn't really going to happen. Or maybe he prayed it the way a lot of us pray things. Kind of this, I believe, help me in my unbelief prayer. Kind of that half-hearted, like, God, and I don't say this as shame. I say this as a fellow journeyer in this. God, I know you can. I don't think you will. I hope you do, but I'm not really sure. And thanks be to God that he answers half-hearted prayers. Amen? Maybe he prayed for that. The grammar of verse 13 doesn't necessarily make it clear either. So what happens is the angel comes and says, your, your prayer's been heard, and you're going to bear a son. 
Your, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. It's, it's not connected. It could, be, it could actually be two separate ideas. Like, we heard you pray. Oh, and by the way, your wife's going to get pregnant. So that doesn't solve it either. Um, and more than that, as priests representing God's people in this once-in-a-lifetime moment, it's more likely that he prayed as all priests were actually meant to pray, which was on behalf of the people. That God would forgive that the offering that was symbolically offered would, 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 would be acceptable to God, that God would remember his promises and would bring a savior. And whatever Zechariah specifically prayed for, God's answer is what every single ache needs at a global level and at a very personal level. There's national and personal pain. There's unmet desires. There's what feels like unheard prayers There's a really long winter. But here in the promise of this miracle baby, we see the first signs that winter is beginning to fade and that the ice is beginning to thaw, that grace is beginning to dawn. And there's hope. There's hope. John, we are told in this text that your son is, you're not just going to have a son. He is going to be great. I've marked him out to do something very important. And the language of like, he, he must not drink strong drink or wine, um, and, but to be filled with the spirit, there's some debate about why that is, but the whole point is that he would be set apart in a significant way because even from the time he's in Elizabeth's womb, he's gonna be filled with the spirit. This is the only place in the Bible that I think that, that is declared up to this point, that he will be filled with the spirit to do something very specific, and it's to do this, to make ready a people for the Lord prepared. You know, remember that last promise from God in Malachi that one like Elijah would come and 400 years of silence, 400 years of unmet desires, 400 years of longing, 400 years of promises waiting to be fulfilled. And what was happening here is the first glimmers is God's about to do it. To bring, as verse 19 says, good news. And the dark days of Herod and the sad days of barrenness, hope. Of all the things that Advent invites us to enter back into, it's to renew hope. Rabbi Hugo Grin was a boy in Auschwitz. And in this internment camp, um, as he and others were imprisoned, one of the things that, that, that you know, is just the reality of the conditions that were forced upon them is that food is very scarce. It was a place where it was very easy to starve. Everyone was in a place of starvation most of the time. And so you, you never let food go to waste. You never, you never threw away the scraps. You, you, you actually would take them and you would say our practice was typically to take them and try to keep whatever we didn't need to eat that day. And, and he says, I remember as a boy that the celebration of Hanukkah was coming. And in that place, God's people were still um, celebrating these, these, these national holidays. And Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights, among many things, was a time to remember when it looks like there's nothing left, when it looks like like everything is lost, when it looks like there's not enough resources to last us, God still shows up. And so this idea of, of God is, hasn't forgotten, God still remembers, God can still do something is so embedded in this, this celebration of, of Hanukkah. And one of the things you do is you light candles for, for eight days or eight nights. And, and so in this story, um, Hugo, he remembers his dad in a place where food was so scarce, he remembers his dad during Hanukkah taking out some margarine that he had preserved. that he just kind of stored away so that he could light candles. And Hugo is is like horrified by this. He's like, dad, we could eat that. Like we're starving. What are you doing? So he asks his dad, 
And his dad replies this way. He says, we know that it is possible to live for three weeks without food, but without hope, it is impossible to live properly for three minutes. These people needed hope. Elizabeth and Zechariah needed hope. And we need hope. I love how Tim Keller says it in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. Advent is a time for us to kind of re-up with what do we believe about the future? What do we believe is coming? What promises are yet to be fulfilled and how will they come to be fulfilled? Yes, there are broken things, national and personal. The aches are real. Yes, there is groaning for things to be different. Yes, sometimes winter feels so long. But Advent is a time, this arrival time, this preparation time to remember the winter doesn't win, that the shadows will fade. You know, so many of our Christmas songs help with this, that, that really cement this, this idea as you listen to them. One of them, O little town of Bethlehem, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight that what happened at the birth of Christ began to take all the groaning, all the longing, all the, all the put off promises, all the, the waiting, and it said, okay, it's starting. It's starting. John came to say, it's starting. There is a Christ. There is a Savior coming. And uh, John's purpose was to point hearts to him. That's the purpose of Advent, to prepare our hearts for him. Growing up, one of my, probably, it wasn't one of my, it was by far my favorite part of Advent was the chocolate Advent calendars. <laughs> I didn't know what they were for, but except chocolate. It's great. You know, you get the calendar, and that first day, you pull out the little piece of chocolate, and wait 24 hours. Next day, you get your little piece of chocolate, and third day, you just pull all the chocolate out and then kind of seal the flaps back close so nobody knows that you ate all the chocolate, and then you steal your brother's chocolate for the rest of Advent. Loved Advent. Recently, I saw an Advent calendar, really clever idea for whiskey lovers, and it's every day, it's a little dram of whiskey. So every day you open it up and you have a little dram of whiskey and you get to try a bunch of different whiskeys as you're going through this. It could be very honoring, very life-giving, your heart's being made merry. I mean that in all seriousness. And it's a dram, so it's measured. So it's like, you know, it's not too much. And so you get to have a little sampling of whiskey as you lead up to Christmas. But here's the thing that wasn't in the commercial. There's no reference to Christ. There, like, with, with the chocolate advent calendar, there, was, there wasn't, like, what are we preparing for? What are we leaning towards? Where are we going? What's this countdown supposed to be about? Advent isn't meant to be a countdown to Christmas as much as a, a summons to Christ to call our hearts back to him. Advent, meaning arrival, doesn't officially start till next Sunday. Um, it starts four weeks before Christmas is this lead-in time, and we'll be going through the season as a church. But, but rightly understood, it's actually not just a, a time to get ready and remember that Christ came. It's actually a time to remember that he's coming again. Rightly understood, we're actually always living in a season of Advent. We're always in between when Jesus came and when Jesus returns. We don't want to miss it. And so what I want to do is just give us three handles as we begin this series through Advent 
And the three handles are invitations, ways to engage with this season well. There's a ton more, um, and maybe we'll hit many of them as we go through the next number of weeks. Um, But let me give you three ways to engage with Advent well, and I'm trying to do each of them from a Christmas hymn or lyric of some kind, because you're going to hear a lot of Christmas songs. I thought about this during the first service, that I really should have just pulled lines from uh, Mariah Carey's uh, Christmas singing, because that's the ones we'll hear the most, and so I didn't have time to reformat them, so they're all from hymns, uh, which seems appropriate. So the first one is this. Let me give you the first handle to enter Advent well, from Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room. I love in that invitation that it is global in scope, but it's also very personal in nature. Let every heart prepare him room. That's so important. That last line, and we miss, we miss the best part if this season becomes dominated with the busyness of getting ready for this season. This, and, this, this, and this is not like a, you know, remember the reason for the season. Yes, all that. Like, but like enjoy, feast, plan, play, wrap presents, order gifts. You know, my, my family yesterday, you know, the, the, the busyness of it was beginning to hit. We were, we, it was our turn to create the, the Christmas calendar. And so it's like this, this sense of like, you know what happens when you create the Christmas calendar or the, you create the, the calendar for the, for the year that you're going to give to the grandparents. This is something we started years and years ago. We didn't know we were signing ourselves up with an annual fight. Because what it is, is you send out to your, your siblings and cousins, whoever else, grandkids, and you say, okay, we need your pictures. We're making grandma and grandpa's calendar. Please send us your pictures. And then you, we just ignore those, right? And so we ignore them, ignore them, and you're like, seriously, I gotta make the calendar. And so yesterday I was going through all the photos and trying to figure out which ones did grandma and grandma want to see for the next you know, year. And so like, I get it. It gets busy, gets busy planning out the meals and getting the invitations and writing the Christmas letter and all those things. And they're all wonderful. They're all so good. And they can all be such distractions, just like an Advent calendar that doesn't end up leading to Christ. Advent offers us so much more than that. It offers us all of that, but it offers us so much more. It offers Christ. So how will you prepare him room? How will you create space where he could set up residence in your heart? Now, one of the things that can help us beyond not being so overly planned and being busy, part of why we'll take our Sundays this month to focus on Advent is to take built-in time to lead us there. Some of it is to do what we already mentioned in this, the beginning of this text is to don't shy away from the ache. Like, bring your real hurts and your real struggles, and your real worries, and your real sadnesses. There's lots of Herods in this world that are ruling and reigning in unrighteous ways that create that. There's lots of barrenness, whatever form that takes in our lives. And we don't, Advent doesn't have to be a time where we're overly negative or sad, but it also doesn't have to be a time where we're glib. We can bring those things, create a longing for hope in Christ who will put an end to the winter. But another way to prepare is to do, to actually understand what John was meant to do is God assigned role from verses 16 and 17. John's going to be great, and here's why. He's, He's set out to do this. He says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, 
And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. His whole ministry was actually to help people prepare their hearts. And the way he did it was a way that a lot of us probably would not want his ministry. He was a preacher with one sermon. And this is how he prepared people. Repent. Repent. If you go later in Luke, in chapter three, you actually hear the first words that John uh, spoke to the, the first community of people that gathered around him. This is what he said. He looked at them all and he said, you brood of vipers. It's a wild, wild job that he had. But what he was doing is trying to, to, to help people have an awareness that they have run from God and then to turn back to God. We actually see that in this text. This word repent means to turn, to make an about face. And so Advent gets to be a season for us to say, God, what are the things that are turning me away from Christ? Help me turn away from those things. And to come back as he came to proclaim a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, meaning John's, part of John's ministry, this child that was promised to come, this miracle baby, is to actually give us a lot of bad news in order to get us back to the best news. Now, I'm not sure how popular Elf on a Shelf is anymore. It was huge a number of years ago. And if you were doing that, and I'm like, everyone's looking like, okay, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say this. I, I think you can do it. I think you can do it well. So just know that. I'm saying that. Are we, are we good? I'm just waiting for the emails. Ding, ding, ding. They're coming in. All right. So Elf on a Shelf, let me just give you the basic premise of, of how it was often used. From Thanksgiving to Christmas, one of Santa's elves would show up in your house. He would break into your house which is kind of weird, right? But he would, so he would break into your house and the elf would, would, would serve as at best a scout for Santa, but really like a spy. And so he would come in and, and the, it's kind of, you know, it's fun, you know, you hide him in a spot and the kids get to go find where he is. So that, that, all that stuff is great. But Santa would send an elf in and he would sit there and he would watch what is this little boy or girl doing? Because Santa can't be in all places at one time. And so he has to like have data to populate his naughty and nice list. And so he sends a, a scout slash spy to break into your house. So they probably were on the naughty list, but, but had to break in. And then he observed little Timmy. Is Timmy going to get a gift this year or is he going to get coal? He had, you know, Santa's got to populate his naughty list somehow. Now, I'm sure there's ways you can do this and make it super fun and make it honor to Christ. But what happens when we use this little elf to squeeze better behavior out of our kids, when we do that, we're actually undermining the very gospel. There's naughty and nice. If you're good enough, then good things happen. If you're bad, then bad things. Here's what John, I think, would say. There is no nice list. You brood of vipers. <laughs> but it would say there's grace because there's Jesus. That's the best news. This ability for us to prepare our hearts to say, I need a savior. I am not right before God. And there's nothing I can do to make myself right before God. But there is one that can his name is Jesus. See, that's John, his whole job was just to point to Christ to say, look at him. Look at him. And, and we actually see this in, in this text. I mean, we see this wrapped up in this, this morning and evening sacrifice where this, this animal was given to, to symbolically represent a substitute. 
Even that pointed to Christ. Christ came to be the substitute. He was born so that we might live. He was born that he might live the way we were meant to live and then die the death that we deserve, that we might live the life that he has secured for us. See, Advent is a time to remember that, to prepare our hearts with that truth. Tonight, you know, we don't want to shy away from the dark things in the world. We don't have to shy away from the dark things in our hearts. Say, I am a mess. But there is a Savior. Move on. One thing that is um, a strange sort of comfort for me. So we want to prepare our hearts. Let me give you the next one here in a sec. Um, one of the things that's a strange comfort for me, and I'm not sure how this will land on you. It didn't land very well in the first service, so I should have changed it. But and, and the times where I get to go to like a big pastor's conference, and I'm sitting there with like 2,000 other people, and the person that's preaching, they get on the stage, and they start. And like for 12 minutes, it's amazing. And then they kind of wander over to the side and then they forget where they were going and they have to walk back over to their notes and say, where was I? And they get lost and then they kind of bumble into getting going again. And I get this like, this, this sort of comfort that comes from like, if the, if the best preachers, if the best leaders, if the best speakers lose their spot, then praise God, because I lose my spot a lot. And so it just gives me this sort of like, if the best can't keep it together, what hope is there for me? And I point to a text like this, and I look at Zechariah, and he is such a comforting figure to me. Verse 6, he's blameless. He's walking. He's obeying God's statutes and commands. Elizabeth was a godly woman from a priestly line. And then you look down at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, you know, remember what he was just told. He's, it's probably been five, six decades of them not having, like longing for a child and it not happening. And look at his first response. The angel tells him this. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? He's basically saying, prove it. Prove it. And we see this in verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. He believes and he disbelieves. He's faithful and he's unfaithful. He, he follows well and he meanders off. Let every heart prepare him room. And now let me give you the next one. And for this one, I'm going to combine two songs um, in the first two lines of those songs. One of them is an invitation for Advent to do this. Oh, come all ye faithful. Come. Zechariah was faithful. But let me add to it a, a contemporary riff off that song by Bob Coughlin. Oh, come all you unfaithful. Oh, come all you faithful. Come all you unfaithful. I love how Coughlin articulates this. So come all you unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come know that you are not alone. Oh, come barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come see what your God has done. Oh, come bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come taste of his perfect love. Oh, come guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. Advent is not just a season for the super put together. If anything, it is a reminder that we're not put together. But there's one that can do it. There's one that can mend us. There's one that can forgive us. There's one that can change us. There's one that can instill in us obedience. And then when we fail in obedience, there's one that we can forgive our disobedience. 
The invitation of Advent isn't an invitation focused on the quality of our lives, but the kindness of our Savior. Prepare him room and let every heart use Advent well. Prepare, create space, often through remembering the hard stuff and remembering the hard stuff in us and to come faithful and unfaithful. And then I'll give you one more because we don't just prepare. Part of Advent, part of the preparation is actually proclamation. Um, We proclaim something. So let me give you a, a, a line from the second verse of Joy to the World. Repeat the sounding joy. It's our, our series theme. The part of Advent allows us to just keep saying over and over and over again to ourselves, to each other, to our world that sits under the herds of the world and the barrenness of their lives that there's one who can change it. To a world that says it's been winter so long. We can remind them that Christmas is real because Christ is returning. Um, and the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, as that book continues, you know, this place where it's always winter and never Christmas, as the book progresses, one of the things that happens that hadn't happened in Narnia, and I don't remember how many years, but we could say 400 years, thousands of years, something that begins to happen is the snow begins to melt. It begins to heat up. The ice begins to melt. And there's this figure that shows up. He's, he's real jolly. He's decked out in red. He shows up in a big sleigh that's carved and beautiful with glittering silver and bells jingling and reindeers pulling. And in the, in the story, the one that shows up is, is Father Christmas. He shows up into Narnia, into this land that's beginning to melt in a land of perpetual winter and never Christmas, and Father Christmas shows up. And he, he says this, he, he goes, I've come at last. She's kept me out for a long time, but I've got in at last. Aslan is on the move. I'll explain that in a second. But listen to this line. The witch's magic is weakening. John in this text is like Father Christmas. I've never thought of this parallel before, but when I studied this text this last week in the scene from the line, the witch in the robe, when he shows up, he, what, what, what Father Christmas is doing, it says it's, it, the, 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 the curse is being lifted, the, the, the venom's being drained, the, the darkness is, is fading because Aslan's coming. There's one that's coming that's gonna change it. That's what John is doing. Aslan in this story in the Chronicles of Narnia is the, the, the lion Christ figure. He's to represent Christ. And when, when Father Christmas, he says that Aslan is on the move. That's a, that's a code phrase in this series that says, Jesus is about to do something. Jesus is up to something. God has not forgotten. God will keep his promises. Christ is on the move. And that's where we find ourselves as we prepare for Advent between the fact that Christ has come and Christ is coming. Verse 14 is offered to all of us, this, this verse of joy and rejoicing, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And that joy is offered not just to Zechariah and Elizabeth, like they're going to have joy because they're going to have a son, but it says many will rejoice because of who his son points to. This idea of joy in Luke. So Luke uses the phrases joy and rejoicing more than any of the gospels combined and uses it more than any other book of the New Testament. It was, it was all about joy because of an understanding of who was arriving, that Jesus is on the move. And because of that, that's why this season can be mixed with, um, marked out with real honesty about the aches. Mixed in with 
unfaithfulness and floundering of our own faith and practice, but above all, a season of surpassing joy. Because when Christ comes back, there will be no more Herods. When Christ comes back, there will be no more winter. When Christ comes back, there will be no barrenness, whatever form it takes. There'll just be joy and rejoicing. Mr. Tumnus, half fallen, half man, hurry. It's winter in Narnia and has been forever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. Advent says, not anymore. Christmas has come and Christ is returning. Let's pray. Father, the range of life in this room, it probably hits all of the peaks, all the valleys, all the joys, all the sorrows that we can imagine in the human condition. And just thank you. Thank you that the story of the Bible, the story of Christianity, the story of the gospel is broad, deep, strong enough to hold it all. Thank you that this season is not for the the fierce and the strong, but for the floundering. Thank you that this season is not a reminder to do better, but to point to the one that's done best. And so help us prepare our hearts. Help us enjoy and laugh and play and be silly and decorate and all of those things and, and, and engage with Advent calendars of whatever kind they are. But help us see them as pointers towards Christ, that our hearts would make room, that he could set up shop as king and as savior. And as we experience the goodness of Christ, might we do what joy of the world offers us, an invitation to repeat the sounding joy over and over and over again, to join with all of creation and this resounding hallelujah that the king has come and the king is coming. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.